Welcome back to Making Sense of Money, a podcast dedicated to shedding some light on both basic and complicated financial topics in personal finance. I'm one of your hosts, Nikki Jankola-Shanks. And I'm Andrew Pellegrini. Last episode, we talked about financial personality inventories and different ways that individuals think about and approach dealing with personal finances. We also talked about financial well-being and the CFPB's financial well-being scale, and it was a great discussion. So be sure to check it out if you missed it. And I'm Jake Hamilton. This episode, we're going to be revisiting a topic that we've covered briefly on the podcast before, cryptocurrencies. We last talked about our cryptocurrency on our fintech episode, but since they're such an interesting and growing technology, we felt that they deserve their own episode to really dive into this financial technology. Uh, We're also happy to welcome today a very special guest this week on the podcast. Uh, Joining us to share his knowledge on cryptocurrencies is Lamont Black. Uh, Associate Professor of Finance at the Driehaus College of Business at DePaul University. Prior to joining DePaul, Professor Black was an economist at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and he has a PhD in both finance and economics. Welcome to the show, Professor. Lamont, could you uh, start by telling us how you first became interested in cryptocurrency and, and why you think cryptocurrency is an important topic in finance today? Yeah, so uh, as you said, I started with the Fed in my career, and so my background's kind of in money and banking, and then I joined DePaul in 2013, and I would say that was the year that I really got interested in crypto, largely because of my students. One of the great things about being a college professor is, you know, just keeping up with the younger generations, and when I was teaching about money and you know, talking about the history of money all the way back to gold and coinage, the gold standard, and then today with the US dollar, my students were like, okay, that's all great, but you know, what about Bitcoin? And so it really forced me to learn more and think about what it meant for the things I teach. And I, and I now teach it um, in those same courses because it's a, it's a great example of how money is changing. And, and I think it's, it's important because it's grown beyond money. It's now about digital assets. It's really also become an investment asset class. And so regardless of what people have heard or assumed about cryptocurrency in the past, I think it's changing and evolving in such a way that you really have to keep up with it because I, I think it has so much potential to, to become more than what it's been and, and engage in, in more and more aspects of finance. For our listeners that didn't catch our FinTech episode, we wanna give a little refresher on what cryptocurrency is. According to Merriam-Webster, cryptocurrency is any form of currency that only exists digitally, usually has no central issuing or regulating authority, but instead uses a decentralized system to record transactions and manage the issuance of new units. And that relies on cryptography to prevent counterfeiting and fraudulent transactions. I don't know about you guys listening, but that's very confusing to me. So let's dive into what that means. Um, Professor Lamont, would you describe what cryptocurrency is, if this was kind of like a crypto 101 class? Sure. So I think most people have now probably heard of Bitcoin, and so that's a a good place to start. So Bitcoin is a form of digital money, and so there's no physical 
coin, even though sometimes there are pictures of those on the internet. And so it is purely electronic cash in that sense. And I think many people are familiar and now comfortable with electronic payments, you know, using Venmo or PayPal or buying things on the internet. Most of our money is now electronic. So it's the digital aspect, I think, is actually not what makes it so interesting or innovative, it's really how it functions. And so even though we today often use electronic payments, they're still connected to bank accounts. And so, you know, my bank, if I wanna send money, I, it's going to verify that that money is in the account. And so it's still managed by that institution. And the money we typically spend here in the U.S., the U.S. dollar is ultimately managed by a central bank, the Federal Reserve. And so even though our system of money has become more digital or electronic, it's still highly governed by banks and by central banks. And cryptocurrency is digital money, which is ungoverned. And another way to, to think about that is decentralized. So rather than money flowing through the banking system and being centralized through these different large financial institutions, cryptocurrency uses a technology called blockchain, which allows that accounting and management system to be decentralized to the network itself. And so uh, the Bitcoin white paper introduces this idea of, you know, how do we have money without these third party trusted institutions? How do we do it ourselves, basically? And so the blockchain uh, technology is called a distributed ledger, where all of those transactions in, let's say, Bitcoin are published publicly on the internet and are then verified by that network. And so rather than money being privately managed through these different banks and institutions, it's a shared record of all these transactions. And so then individuals can have a digital wallet with uh, uh, an account that stores that, let's say, Bitcoin in that wallet. But then if they want to transfer that, fund, that money to someone else, it would be the network itself that would verify whether that transaction is legitimate. So that's often what's referred to as mining in the case of Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin revolutionized money because it shifted away from banks, away from governments, and it became this form of money that only exists on the internet and doesn't rely on any of these traditional uh, institutions. And so I think that is what some people love about it and what some people find just baffling about it because there's really, there's no person you can call on the phone to you know, try and figure out what happened to my Bitcoin. It is purely a system of record keeping that is maintained by the network itself. And, and so, now what we're seeing is cryptocurrency has evolved into an entire market where there are new forms of cryptocurrency. Uh, some of them are designed for money. Some of them are designed for other purposes. And anyone can create cryptocurrency. It doesn't have to be issued by a government. And so the, the opportunities and the potential really are limitless. You covered so many different components, like, like obviously, this is a complicated topic. So 
I'm sure we're going to have more specific questions on different components of what you talked about. But I kind of have a surprise question that we might not have. I tend to do this. I'm sorry, but also not sorry. Can you see any potential like parallels between pre-centralization of currencies and where we're moving now to decentralized currency and where there might be, you know, identified pros and cons that you could see from a historical perspective since you teach on that? Like yeah, the I, yes, I think that's a great question, Andrea. Um, you know, we are very much, we live in the moment and so we're very used to you know, national currency attached to a national government. We're very used to central banks, but it hasn't always been that way. And to your point, the, the systems of money that we had prior to this were actually more fragmented, more private. And so, you know, the Federal Reserve hasn't existed forever. It was created in 1913, so just over a hundred years ago. And prior to that, we had different forms of national banking, but in many cases, banks were issuing their own currency that served their customers, their region. And so it was a much more kind of, again, decentralized system. And I think the, the pros and cons are, um, you could say one of the big pros of centralized money is stability and kind of transparency. So having the US dollar, you know, it's backed by the faith and credit of the US government. And some people really like that. It gives them a sense of assurance that, you know, this thing is this, if I hold money today, it's going to be worth something similar to that uh, in the future. And, you know, part of that was trying to end bank runs, you know, people during, we had a lot of banking crises prior to the centralization of money. But the, the downside is it creates this kind of very narrow view of what money is. It's kind of controlled and uh, managed through monetary policy. It's really owned by the, the, the government. And so people who lean a little more kind of libertarian or entrepreneurial, I think, would see that as more of a negative of, you know, let's have opportunities to create alternative funds, forms of money that, that are you know, innovative and can serve similar purposes, but also different purposes. So you know, I, I don't ever see crypto totally replacing something like the US dollar, but I think they can coexist because they can serve different groups with different interests and needs. Well, and we have identity as a big component of how we manage financial assets or just generally assets. So people that are more risk averse may want to lean more towards a centralized currency. And those that, like you said, are more entrepreneurial might lean more towards something like cryptocurrency. So with all of this information that you've prevented, presented with us, uh, can you kind of explain the difference between blockchain and crypto and how decentralization kind of comes into play there? Sure. So these terms are used a lot nowadays, blockchain and cryptocurrency. And, and I think they're not always well understood because they are complicated. So blockchain is a technology 
cryptocurrency is an application of that technology. So you really need blockchain to run a cryptocurrency, but blockchain can be used for a lot of other purposes as well. Um, and the way to think about blockchain is it's sort of like the accounting system behind the cryptocurrency. So if you have like wallet A and wallet B and you wanna move money from wallet A into wallet B, you have to make sure that the money is actually there. You wouldn't want people to be able to spend money that they don't have. That's called the double spend problem. And so blockchain is like a system of record keeping where you have the entire history of every transaction that's either gone into or out of wallet A. And therefore, if you, if you look at that entire history, it tells you how much is still in that wallet. It's, sort, it's what a ledger does, you know? It's just a historical record of all transactions. And so if you have that history, then you can verify whether the money is there or not and then you can verify whether it's legitimate. And so this blockchain uh, ledger is also distributed. So everyone has a copy of that same ledger. You can look up the Bitcoin blockchain on the internet and you can look at any, any account on the blockchain and say, okay, this account has this much Bitcoin in it. It's moving in and out in this way. And so all of that is public. And then the cryptography, is the, the use of what's called a private key for the owner of that wallet to be able to access those funds. And so blockchain is incredibly public in one sense of everyone can see the ledger where the money is, but also incredibly private in the other sense of you don't know the identity of any of those owners, it's only the person with the private key. And so this has created this interesting tension I think in the public dialogue of some people are really, I think, worried that, that cryptocurrency is all about money laundering and fraud and you know, ransomware and things like that. Like it's true, you know, those activities do take place through crypto, but there's a lot of policy people who are very interested in blockchain because of this record keeping function. You know, the IRS is looking at this and saying, well, you mean you can look at this wallet and observe every single transaction and you have full information on what's going in and out? That's like their dream. And so they're starting to think about like some of the cryptocurrency exchanges um, like Coinbase and Kraken, if they collect information from those exchanges and they know all of your transactions, they have a full record of your tax history and people are now, you know, being asked to, to pay taxes on crypto. And so this isn't just the dark web. It's not just, you know, illegal activity. It's becoming more mainstream. And therefore, I think some of these more kind of mainstream regulations and use cases are becoming more relevant. Thank you for breaking all that down. I think, I think it is people do get a little confused about the difference between the technology and then you know the cryptocurrency aspect of it, the blockchain versus the crypto. But one thing that you kind of alluded to or mentioned in that is um, that the the ledger is distributed and it is not governed by a central authority, but governed by all of its users. Um, and, and the ledger, you know, confirms transactions by creating consensus. 
Um, so some of the listeners may have heard of a consensus mechanism or maybe like proof of work or proof of stake. Uh, could you talk about those and how it relates to the mining aspect as in like mining Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency? Yeah, so whenever you have a decentralized system, you have to have some mechanism for making decisions. You know, centralization is, okay, you're the boss, you're going to tell us what to do. And decentralization is more like a democracy where we all are kind of in this together. And so in the Bitcoin white paper, it actually uses the phrase, one computer, one vote. And so the, the mining process is a process in which individuals or institutions who are running these Bitcoin nodes are in, essential, are in essence voting on whether the next block or the next transaction is legitimate. It has to be verified. And the way that we um, think about that is kind of consensus, kind of like we would think in terms of political science. How do we agree? Now, the, the mechanism in Bitcoin is something called proof of work, where these nodes are running an uh, encryption algorithm in order to verify that the new information lines up with the previous information. That's actually part of the, the technology is each new block has to line up with the previous block. That's how you know that there's, no, there's nothing that's kind of abnormal relative to that history. And then it, you actually have to run the computer in order to generate these um, these new uh, hashes that then are lined up with the previous hash. And in, in doing so, you are using a certain amount of computational power. And that's actually by design because you don't want the Bitcoin network to be hackable. You don't want one really large user or one big computer to be able to come in and then say, hey, you know, this transaction is legitimate because I say it is. You want the entire network to be involved in verifying these transactions so that no one bad actor can overpower that network. And so it is kind of energy inefficient because you, it requires a lot of energy to, 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 to do this process. Now that's created a lot of, um, I think, concerns recently about the environmental impact of cryptocurrency and mining. Uh, there are some studies that are now showing, you know, Bitcoin mining is now the energy consumption is at the scale of like certain countries, you know, and that's just, that's not what you want to see. But a couple things on that. One is there are many innovative Bitcoin companies now that are trying to use renewable energy for mining. They're trying to use surplus energy. So energy that would not have been used otherwise that's in some distant location. They're setting up mining pools in these uh, offsite locations. So there's a lot of things people are doing to address that, but also the consensus mechanism itself is changing. So some of the, the newer cryptocurrencies use something called proof of stake, which is more efficient. It doesn't require as much energy. Ethereum is transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. And so again, crypto isn't just kind of one thing. It continually evolves. And when people have concerns or issues, whether that's security or fraud or the environment, there are people who are working on all those issues so that they can create newer versions that, that address them.
I'm actually really glad that you brought up the environmental aspect because that's something that was new to me. I didn't realize um, that, I mean, to be fair, everything about crypto is new to me, but even more new <laughs> was um, this environmental piece. Do you see this environmental piece becoming a blockade to people adopting Bitcoin in the future, especially as you know, there, there's a lot of emphasis on climate change and green energy, et cetera, um, that, that this is kind of fighting, fighting that. Yeah, well, I do think those two are potentially at odds. So I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, millennials and Gen Z are growing up in this world where there's both like newer ideas about cryptocurrency, but also greater emphasis on the environment and uh, being environmentally responsible and sustainable. And so, it, you know, I would say even this last spring, the narrative really kind of focused on that intersection. And part of what uh, brought that to a head was uh, Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla, saying, you know, we're going to stop accepting Bitcoin because this mining process is simply too dirty. It's too damaging to the environment. And so, you know, that brought crypto prices way down. There were, you know, some other factors, but that was a big one. And, and I, I would say myself, I kind of took a step back and said, whoa, like, I'm not sure I want to be associated with something because I'm very green myself. And I don't want to become like the poster child for this, this thing that is having this impact. But again, I think there are, there are many people who are working on how do you have green mining? That's a thing. So it, it's not like that's impossible. Uh, there are people who are working on these different, you know, uh, mining mechanisms. So there are more energy efficient versions of those. So I think all of those are incremental. Um, and then I would say thirdly, there is also, I think a growing uh, intersection between cryptocurrency and traditional money, which might develop some interesting uh, kind of synergies. So one uh, aspect of that is central bank digital currency. So you can have digital currency, which is not decentralized. Cryptocurrency is decentralized by, by design, but the, the People's Bank of China has issued a digital renminbi, a digital Chinese currency, which is backed by their central government. The Federal Reserve is now kind of considering this, the European Central Bank. And so I think what we're seeing is a trend towards digital currency which might take different forms. Some of them might be more energy intensive, some of them less energy intensive, but it's just like this whole spectrum. And I think there are trade-offs and people are gonna kind of explore and, and figure out how, where are they most comfortable, both in terms of kind of innovation and sustainability. Very interesting. Um, so hopefully this kind that kind of gives listeners a, a basic overview of how blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies work. Um, we could spend days talking about this topic, so we're, we're just trying to get through um, some basics for our listeners. But let's transition and talk about some of the specific cryptocurrencies and their uses. So according to Yahoo Finance, the top 
10 cryptocurrencies by market capitalization are Bitcoin, Ether, USD Tether, Binance Coin, Cardano, USD Coin, Ripple, Dogecoin, Hex, and Polkadot. So a lot of people are probably familiar with some of the more popular ones like Bitcoin, Ether, and even Dogecoins. Not gonna lie, I know about Dogecoins because of my husband. <laughs> but, and, and actually Andrea. But, and, but there are thousands more different types of cryptocurrencies. So we're not gonna discuss everyone in detail here, but in general, what are these different cryptocurrencies used for? Yeah, it can be a little overwhelming, I think, given this proliferation of cryptocurrency to figure out where to begin. Um, so we've talked some about Bitcoin. That's number one in terms of market capitalization. So price times quantity, how much is out there? And I, I am a big kind of proponent of understanding number two on that list, which is Ether. So Ether I think has the potential to actually surpass Bitcoin in its relevance and use cases. So uh, Bitcoin is designed to be digital money and that's really all it does, just transferring value on the internet, but it does that very well. Ether is the cryptocurrency used in the Ethereum network, which is different. It is designed more to be a platform for building things on the internet. And the money, the ether, is simply something that functions in that network so that you can transfer value for these applications. So um, Ethereum is, it was something created um, a few years after Bitcoin, which uses blockchain technology, but beyond that, it also uses something called smart contracts. And so smart contracts, are just like a little bit of code that uh, runs on the blockchain that uh, implements some sort of uh, transaction. And then users can interact with these smart contracts. And those smart contracts start to provide certain functions or services on the blockchain. And so Ethereum has become this kind of platform for building what are called decentralized applications, which are more kind of services that we associate with the internet, but they're running on a blockchain. So one of my favorites is something called Uniswap. So if you wanna buy or sell cryptocurrency, you have to ask yourself, well, how am I gonna do that? Some of your, your listeners might be interested in buying it and then have to figure out where to start. Well. I often recommend buying cryptocurrency on Coinbase because it's a US publicly traded company. It's pretty transparent and I think relatively safe. But then if you wanna start taking the crypto you own and selling it for other crypto, do you necessarily wanna do that on a centralized exchange or could you do that on something called a decentralized exchange? And that's what Uniswap is. So Uniswap isn't a firm. It's not in a sense run by like a typical company. It's really just a system of logic. It's an algorithm in which it is constantly matching buyers and sellers of cryptocurrency. All of that was built on the Ethereum blockchain. 
And so then you can use Ether to pay a transaction fee in, the, in order to buy and sell other cryptocurrencies. And so Ether is actually, there's also this thing called gas. It's like, it's kind of like the oil that then lubricates all these other things that you're doing with the blockchain. And so, whereas Bitcoin was solely des designed to be money, Ether or Ethereum was really designed kind of like as like an app store of anybody can go in and build new applications on top of it. And so what you're seeing with these other cryptocurrencies is now uh, a coin which is associated with some type of activity or business. So I actually own Uni, which is the coin associated with Uniswap. The more people who use Uniswap, the value of Uni will increase. And so um, what we're seeing is now these tokens or coins that are associated with a particular type of service or activity. And as you provide that service, the value of that token goes up. Now, what, what I like about that is, for instance, Bitcoin is very hard to value. What, what is Bitcoin worth? Is it overvalued or undervalued right now? That's pretty hard to put a number on that. But, but we're better at valuing corporations or businesses. You know, if you say, well, what is Apple worth or what is Amazon worth? Well, you can look at their sales, their revenue, and so on. And what we're seeing with these other coins is they're basically a, uh, a token that serves this business or service. And so the more people use those services, the more they will have value. And so as, as people are thinking about whether you want to buy a certain crypto, you want to understand what is that crypto doing? What function is it serving? So Lamont, I have kind of a clarifying question with the Ethereum apps that you talked about. Can a consumer that's using an application that built on Ethereum see the logic for the algorithms that are being used? Like you can yes. cryptocurrency? Yes, that's part of what I love about this stuff is, is these algorithms or smart contracts, that's all publicly available. It's open source code. And so from like a kind of a consumer perspective, I think it's much more transparent. Now, granted, it's, it is kind of complicated to try and understand this stuff. But once you understand it, if you want to know exactly what's going on kind of behind those doors, all you have to do is look at the code because there's no person, there's no Wizard of Oz behind the green curtain. It's just all right there. And the code is the law, so to speak. And, and what you see is what you get, which from a consumer perspective, I think is ideal. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, most people think about algorithms and like logic behind what's going on in the spaces that they make decisions in from a social media perspective, right? The algorithms change and what shows up in your feed will also change, but you never get to see what those algorithms are and what impacts it. So it's good that something like Ethereum that's kind of building these more transparent type apps, it's built for cryptocurrency or blockchain technology is, is kind of practicing what they preach from like the way that the blockchain technology is emphasized, at least the way you've described it. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's the public nature of blockchain. 
you know, when you put a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain, it's out there for the world to see. It's no longer this kind of private thing that you manipulate for your own purposes. So Lamont, you uh, alluded to how do you, how do you, you know, purchase or acquire uh, a cryptocurrency, you know, you recommended uh, Coinbase as, as one medium to go to um, purchase cryptocurrency. You know, I think maybe some of the listeners, you know, might not understand that aspect of it. So, you know, if, if I want to go get physical cash, I can go to my bank or an ATM to withdraw that cash and then use it to make pur purchases. Um, you talked about Coinbase as one place to go get uh, cryptocurrency. Um, where do the where do the digital wallets come into this, and and where do people hold on to their crypto? Where is it stored? You know, if I go get physical cash, I put it in my pocket. Where does a where does a wallet come in? It's where where's the where's the online pocket, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when people first, I think get introduced to crypto and start thinking about wanting to own crypto, then that raises the question, well, how do I actually buy crypto? And whenever you're trying to convert a traditional currency like the US dollar into cryptocurrency, like buying Bitcoin with USD, then you have to figure out where you're gonna do that. There, there are other ways you can do it. Like there are these Bitcoin ATMs that uh, some of the listeners might've used. And, uh, Coinbase, as I said, is one way to do that. But the one of the uh, kind of, I think, next steps that people should be thinking about once they actually own Bitcoin is, do I own my private key or is someone holding it on my behalf? So when you buy Bitcoin or other crypto on Coinbase, Coinbase is functioning as a custodian for those assets. They're holding them on your behalf. Now, I, th I still think that's a great place to start because it's simplest and uh, it, it, I think you, you can get too complicated too quickly. But one risk that does exist with cryptocurrency exchanges is if they're holding all of these private keys and then the exchange itself gets hacked, that money can get stolen. And I mean, there's a long history since the beginning of Bitcoin of different exchanges that have been hacked. Mount Gox in Japan was one of the big ones. Um, and so there is a risk of having someone hold your money on, on your behalf. Uh, a wallet is really a, um, it's like an application for managing your private key and your cryptocurrency account. And so uh, if you have a listener who's interested in this, I would, uh, the one that I use is called MetaMask, M-E-T-A-M-A-S-K. And it's a form of online wallet, which um, resides on my computer, but it allows me to manage my own private keys and then I can then send money from my cryptocurrency accounts using MetaMask. So it's, a, it's sort of like a way of verifying that you own that account. So if somebody else has that private key, they can send the money out of that wallet and then it's gone and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no customer service center, you know, you're done. 
And so the question is, how do you manage these private keys? Uh, MetaMask is an easy one to do that because you can do it through an internet browser. Um, now the risk of managing your own wallet is if you use some system where you're kind of like storing that private key, which would be a sequence of numbers and letters, and then you lose the private key, you then lose access to that wallet. So another big story that's kind of out there are people who like forget their private key or their password. They have millions of dollars in Bitcoin, but they can't access it. You know, that's another common one in the news. And so managing your own money in the crypto world also has its risks. I would say like the risks of someone else managing it for you is it might get hacked. The risk of you managing it for yourself is you might lose it. And so you kind of have to trade that off. And to Andrew's point, it's, it's partly about risk tolerance and it's partly about, I think, personality of like, do you want to DIY your own money? And, and wallets are really a form of DIY for money that gives you a lot of new functionality. So if you, own, if you manage your own wallet and, and have your own private key, that then gives you access to a lot of these other crypto applications because MetaMask is actually kind of, it's kind of like a, a, um, a login that you can use for these other applications because it's your way of verifying that you own the account. And wallets are kind of the, the entry point for doing that. So quick question. Actually, I have two. <laughs> Sorry. But my first is, so if you cannot remember your password, you can never access your, what you have? Because I, I can see Correct. that being a per, huge potential problem considering, I mean, how many times have we all clicked forgot password on whatever app we're using? <laughs> so it's just like out there? Yeah, it, it is accounts or wallets which have value in them, but no one can access them. So there's no backup. Now, I, again, let me just go back and say there are like Coinbase, you know, if I forget my password at Coinbase, I can click on forgot password. And so Coinbase is like a way to, to, to introduce to crypto where you still kind of have this backup. But if you're if you kind of want to get more bold and go beyond that, then you can go this kind of wallet direction. Can you set up two-factor authentication on a wallet? I assume not. Um yeah, yes. So it is sort of um it there like MetaMask also has two-factor authentication, but uh the question is you still have to have this uh, password, if you forget your password, then MetaMask is going to ask you for something called this like seed phrase, mm -hmm. where you know ultimately there's some information that only you have and the wallet does not store on your behalf. So that's kind of the, the trade-off with all these companies that were very comfortable like using a password. If they get hacked and, and someone learns your password, then they can access all your stuff. You know, my email has been hacked before, like it's a nightmare. And so, you know, it's very convenient in one sense, but not very secure in the other. And so wallets are kind of great for security, but not as convenient 
And, and this is, I think, the next stage of crypto adoption is trying to figure out how do we have both security and convenience so that people have a certain level of comfort that they're not going to like screw up and, and lose everything. It's funny the parallels to like actual cash. Sorry, Nick, I don't mean to cut you off, but you know, it's it's like a, you can like people lose their wallets, you know, and they lose the physical cash that's in them. You hear these horror stories about people who have, you know, a ton of Bitcoin in a wallet that they had in 2011 or something, and then forgot the password and haven't been able to access it. But it's yeah, the the parallels to you know fiat currency and and, and physical cash is. Is almost kind of funny with the wallets versus like, you know, a checking account aspect. I think that's a good point though, Jake. I think that makes it a little bit more concrete for people like me who um, are still learning about cryptocurrency that like, yes, people can lose their wallet. There's nothing you can do about it. You can also lose your wallet online by not knowing your password. So my other question actually comes from my aunt through me because um, she helps uh, babysit my child. And so I told her that we were doing this podcast with an expert and she brought up to me, she's just like, I've read about it. I, I've, I've tried to understand. But what I don't understand is if you have Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in your wallet, do you have money? Like, is that money that you can spend? So I thought I'd bring that up because I think that some people who are listening may have that type of basic question like okay so i have this bitcoin now what yes that is a it's a it's a totally fair question because many people like because you can't touch it or feel it it just it's not real in that sense um which is a little ironic given that most of the stuff we buy nowadays is online you're not putting cash in an envelope and yet it's somehow real um and so yes there are companies that will accept Bitcoin as a means of payment. So you can buy stuff with cryptocurrency. It is still somewhat limited. You know, I think part of what has shifted over the last five years is Bitcoin was created as a form of money, but it's really become more a form of investment of people buy it as like an asset, kind of like buying stock because you think the price is going to go up. They really don't necessarily ever intend to use it in that sense. But I do think we will see more and more crypto uh, evolve as a form of money, potentially as like prices stabilize. And, and one other thing I, I forgot to mention on that list of, the, of cryptos is um, so like Tether and uh, USD coin or USDC, those are stable coins which were created specifically to have stable value. They're, they're, it's like one coin equals $1. And so they have all the benefits of crypto, but they have the stability of the US dollar because they're, they're pegged to it. And so what I think we will potentially see in the next few years is not necessarily Bitcoin becoming a means of payment, but people having stable coins in their digital wallets and using stable coins as a means of payment. So that way it's still kind of like buying something online, but you don't need a bank account. You don't have to pay all those high transaction fees, but also you're not gonna have to guess from one day to the next as to like what this stuff is worth because it's a stable coin. 
So kind of following along with what you've been saying about people buying cryptocurrencies with their expected value going up in time or speculated value going up in time. Um, and some people are kind of viewing them like traditional securities, like stocks, um, but they've been kind of, cryptocurrencies have been kind of volatile, especially over last year. What are some of your thoughts on the volatility that's been going on, especially given some of like the recent regular, regulatory changes to cryptocurrencies internationally, like in China a few months ago? Yeah, the volatility is intense and that's both what creates opportunity and risk from an investing perspective. And uh, I would say the regulatory uncertainty is a big part of what's created that volatility over the last few months, because as crypto becomes more mainstream, the regulators are kind of paying more attention and being forced to make some decisions. And so, you know, it is kind of that the dust has not settled, so to speak. So um, I, I think there's more volatility to come. And, you know, I think I am nervous that some people are starting to like buy Dogecoin on Robinhood and that like they have no idea what any of this stuff is, but it's like, well, so-and-so did it and man, it's already up like a hundred percent. Like you got to get in, bro. Like uh, that, that I think has, you know, limited value because uh, that's basically gambling. But I, I would say a lot of my students are, investing in crypto, but, but they're incredibly savvy. And, and I think many of them are learning about this as they go. And so I, I would never say like, you know, you should never touch crypto with a 10 foot pole, but I would also say, you know, don't bet your house on it. It's sort of like, it should be part of your investment portfolio. You should have, you know, your, if you're, if you're not invested in the stock market at all, I would say you probably shouldn't be investing in crypto. But if you're already in the stock market and you understand the risks of investing and you know upside and downside, then crypto does create this interesting alternative where if you really believe, like I think I do, that you know Ethereum has this incredible potential because of all these applications that can be built on it, why would I not buy Ether today as a way of you know, investing in that future and potentially getting the, some of those returns. And so you have to be willing to lose that money because it's so risky. But I think it's also, this is a great time to, to start getting in, involved, part, just dip your toes in the water, learn about it. The more you learn, the more confident you'll be. And then you'll, the more, I think, informed you'll be about where to invest and where not to invest. It sounds like diversification is a big piece of the, the puzzle if you're going to invest in cryptocurrency. Just don't, don't put all your investing money in one asset class, which we talked about in one of our previous episodes on investing. So, and I, I just have to say, I loved your impression of everybody going to <laughs> run to buy because I have heard that from people and I... I had expressed to, to, I think even to Jake and Andrea that I was nervous about like all these people who are running to buy something that they don't understand. And then they're gonna be out money, like people who can't really afford in the first place to be doing this 
are going to be out money, whether it's with Dogecoin when that was going up or AMC stock or whatever, whatever's trending that week. So I, I appreciate you um, also bringing that up. What do you think are some of the other potential uses for cryptocurrency and blockchain that you're optimistic about? Yeah, so, well, let me just say blockchain, again, has applications well beyond cryptocurrency. So in one of the courses I teach, we talk about applications to like supply chain management. We talk about applications to human resources and credentialing. So, um, you know, I would encourage people to learn about blockchain even beyond cryptocurrency. Um, and then within cryptocurrency, I think what we're seeing is this... Um, evolution towards new and interesting use cases. So another example that we haven't talked about is uh, like non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Now those are, you know, also kind of like the item du jour of people trying to make big money and, and you know, taking crazy risks on things that potentially have zero value. But it is this very interesting progression, I think, of as we move towards a world in which um, ownership of digital assets potentially becomes more important than ownership of physical assets, how do we keep track of that ownership? So if you think about the history of like wealth, it used to be you know, like land, the landed gentry, and then it became like real estate and owning buildings and property and things. But now we typically think of wealth more as like stocks and bonds, but those are you know, digital securities that are, which are attached to some sort of corporation. You know, we don't own stock certificates in our file cabinet anymore. So those are digital assets. And then now we're seeing with things like art, you know, the creation of digital art, which is no longer like a digital representation of physical, but it is digital in, in its uh, creation. So this uh, NFT, this artwork created by the artist Beeple that, that sold for like $70 million or something. Some people look at that and they're like, this is crazy. It's all just zeros and ones. You know, uh, it, it only exists on the internet. Therefore, it's not real. But with blockchain, you can create a record of ownership, not just for money, but also for other objects or assets, if you will. And so we're doing that with artwork. Uh, a lot of my students have gotten very into like Top Shot, which is like the NBA's version of these video clips that are a, a non-fungible token. And I think the future of not just money, but also investing is how do we keep a record of things that are non-physical? And, and blockchain is very good for that. And so cryptocurrency, I think, is transitioning out of just money into these types of ownership functions. And then ultimately, um, kind of a, again, a platform for building a, a, a whole new way of doing things online. So if, you're, if your listeners are really into this, I would encourage them to go from decentralized to like decentralized internet or web three. So 
when we think of the internet, originally the vision was very kind of libertarian of, you know, we're all gonna be in this together. You know, my voice is gonna matter just as much as yours. It, the vision for the internet was decentralized, but it's now dominated by these large tech companies, you know, the Googles, Apples, and Amazons of the world. And all this data collection and advertising, it's just, it started to become something that I don't think was the original uh, vision. People are now talking about how do we use this decentralized paradigm to go beyond crypto to actually thinking about the infrastructure behind the internet. And like, it's just, it's kind of, to me, mind blowing how blockchain can just radically change not just money, but, but all these other ways that we've gotten very used to, to living in a digital world. That's so interesting. It's kind of how it ties into our, our last episode was actually about financial personalities and you know how people approach money. And I think this all ties in so well. Uh, and, and you mentioned scams too. You know, um, there's something I just wanted to touch on. You know, with cryptocurrency or any money, um, you know, financial scams have existed as long as money has pretty much. Um, even Ponzi schemes. You know, there's a prominent example of of a cryptocurrency Ponzi scheme um, that was orchestrated in 2016 with a company called uh, BitConnect that launched and went on to become a $2.6 billion Ponzi scheme uh, in which 1.5 million people were scammed. Uh, and I don't want to say that to scare anybody, but just so that our listeners are aware of the risk and, you know, there always is that risk of scams. Just, we always encourage people to do their research before they uh, spend their hard-earned money on, on, on something. Um, but Lamont, I want to thank one thing you. I, one thing I want to add to that, Jake, like if you're thinking about buying crypto, stick with the top 10 list. Don't get into those smaller ones because those are the ones where they're newer, they're less tested and, and you can really get burned. So I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, that, that is a great point. Well, I was just going to say thank you so much for coming on the show uh, today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. But before we let you go, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, just to educate yourself if you're freaked out or afraid of this stuff don't just kind of bury your head in the sand try and learn more about it and understand it and make informed choices because i think there's a lot of potential out there but thank you very much for having me it's been great we really appreciate you being here this is a complicated topic and I, I could see that, you know, even a year from now, you're going to come back one day maybe, and it's going to be completely different, a whole new set of things about crypto. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as Lamont said, if you are interested or intrigued by this topic, um, do your research, look into it. We'll link a few things in um, the show notes. Another piece of this is that um, IDFPR, where Jake and I work, um, we released a report on blockchain technology and banking in December of 2020. So you could read that to, to learn a little bit more. We'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Um, shout out to Jake because he actually was in charge of that report. So. I want to echo Jake and Nikki. Thank you again, Lamont, for joining us today. I learned a lot. I'm just generally curious about all things. I'm very curious about financial technology and like new things that come out. So I learned a lot today and I really appreciate that. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in today, all our listeners. 
Uh, and make sure to join us next time as we welcome on Kathy Sweedler, one of my very longtime friends and colleagues from University of Illinois Extension to discuss how to choose a financial professional. And as always, be sure to subscribe and share and thanks for listening.